Welcome to the Highland Gospel Mission, a podcast to all nations. Each week, Pastor Keith will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message from Highland Southern Baptist Church to the rest of the world. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to read along and study the Word for deeper understanding. Now, here's Pastor Keith with this week's message. Got your Bibles open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I'm going to have to read chapter 3, but we're going to read straight through chapter 3. Um, just to point out kind of where Paul is getting what he's saying in chapter 4. We'll see how far we can get through chapter 4 before the Lord tells me to shut up and let everybody go home and eat. Um, again, the, the letter of Ephesians, when you, look at the, uh, when you look at the original manuscripts, all of the copies of the books of Ephesians did not have the word Ephesians in it or Ephesus in it. Uh, there were some that did, so they kept that as the title. But it is believed by what they found that the book of Ephesians is actually a chain letter, so to speak. And when you look at it, this is one of three that I know of in the New Testament that are letters that do this. Uh, this particular letter was a chain letter, meaning all of the information that it shared, none of it was specific to the church in Ephesus. All of the emphasis, or all of the, uh, all, the entire letter of the book of Ephesians, you could drop off in any doctrinal church, and any doctrinal church could learn a lesson from every part of it without context. Now, by context, I mean what was going on in the original church. Now, we can address a lot of things that apply to a day to today, but when you look at like the letters of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, those letters were addressing specific issues within the church that day that we could certainly glean things from and apply to our lives today. But this one is interesting because the, uh, most of the manuscripts they found had no reference to Ephesus to it at all, which is extremely interesting to me. Um, I think there's reasons that there were three of those books that were put in there. I mean, it, when you look at through every one of the scriptures, one of the most interesting studies that I remember going through in one of the seminary classes was um, was looking at how the Bible's actually laid out and looking at how uh, how many of you guys know the Bible is not in chronological order? If you ever want to read the Bible in chronological order, they do sell a chronological Bible. You can also look up online, and it'll actually tell you which books to go to first to be able to read it in chronological order. The Bible's not in chronological order. They are separated by theme and length. That's the way they're separated. Theme and length. So first four verse, or first, first four letters or books of the Bible... Gospels. The last gospel that's usually mentioned, or the third one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is not only a gospel, but it's also history. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, so it's also considered church history. And when you get past that, you start with the church epistles, and those church epistles are listed longest to shortest in that order. Then you get to the pastoral epistles, and those pastoral epistles are listed longest to shortest. The system is not a system that gives you the ability to just pick up the Bible and know that you're reading things in the order that they're supposed to be in. The point is this. Mo everything the Bible has to say addresses specific situations. When churches are actually being held accountable by the Apostle Paul, that is not the way that that's supposed to happen. Who's supposed to be governing the church? And don't say Jesus. That universal answer don't always work. Who's supposed to be governing the church? You are. I am. 
the deacons are. Whatever position a person's in, that's what you're doing is enforcing the governing of the church through your particular gift, which is prolonging and provoking the will of God, or I should say fulfilling the will of God, and is actually producing something in the lives of the people of the church. Well, the popular things that were going on at the time that, that Ephesians was read was, of course, you've got the Jews. The Jews are having issues um, because these individuals who call themselves Christians, they seem to have a morality to them, but without the law. They were extremely threatened by this. I mean, if, if, if you come to me, if, if you walk up to me and my son standing next to me, and I have a steak, freshly cooked, medium, seasoned nicely, and Zach's standing next to me with the exact same steak, and mine is 50 bucks and his is free, which one are you going to eat? You eat the free one, right? I, I don't understand. Here's what I don't understand about us as a church. When we gain knowledge about what is what God is capable of, the promises even, if you just took the promises he made to us, it's an impossible concept for us to be able to, to, to grasp that the thing that Jesus Christ gave us that was the most valuable is absolutely free. But then we choose the life that we pay for. So the best life is free. The life that has its pressures and difficulties increased. In this particular letter, Paul is addressing the issue with Gentiles. Imagine being a guy who is known in the community as a Jew, who is also known as a guy who persecuted the church. He was known as that guy. Now, his name changed, but just because his name changed don't mean people didn't recognize him. This guy was a Jew to the core of his being. He, he upheld all of the Jewish laws and rules that he could. He studied under Gamaliel. He was sharp as a tack when it came to the Jewish side of things. So let's say you've got this group of Gentiles that he's just gone into this area to try to lead to Christ and to minister to. And these people in this area that he's crossing, these guys know him by reputation, both sides of him by reputation. And he is trying to share the gospel with a Gentile. How do Gentiles typically respond to Jews who have authority? They ignore them. They hate each other. They're not allowed to talk to each other. A Jew cannot talk to a Gentile, cannot talk to a Samaritan. They can't talk to somebody who's half Jew. They can't talk to somebody who's a Jew who's accepted the Greek culture. They can't talk to anybody that's not a Jew. So then you get this one Jew who's the diamond in the rough, who Jesus blinded on the, on the road to Damascus, who restored his sight, said, I've set you aside for a job, and your job is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And I can imagine Paul going to the Gentiles. That's not what I studied in. That's not what I acquired all of my experience in. I know nothing about the Gentile except I spent my entire life being told by all of the Jewish leadership that I can't talk to them. And now, God, you're telling me a Jew raised under Gamaliel, a, a, by his own word, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, is being sent to the Jews or to the Gentiles. 
How much credibility do you suppose Paul walks into that meeting with? None. None. But why? Who did the people see when they saw Paul? They saw a Jew. They saw a persecutor. They saw a hater. This chapter we're going to read is Paul taking the attention off of himself and putting it on Jesus. In other words, it's not. But it's, Paul's not saying, I'm here to teach you. I'm here to tell you. I'm here to make you. Paul was simply there to get these people Jesus which would have been a very difficult thing to overcome just from your teachings in the first place. In fact, forget the fact you're not allowed to talk to them. To a, to a Jew or somebody in Judaism, there's no salvation for a Gentile. None. So Paul had to overcome a lot of st struggles and challenges to even get to the point that he would go to the Gentiles. And then later we find out why God did that, because not only was Paul someone who became very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, but he also became very knowledgeable of the relationship with Jesus and the, and the expectations within that relationship. One of the reasons I tend to think that he may have been the, the author of Hebrews. There are a lot of people who argue with that. Some people say it was, some people even say it was one of the women ministers at the time. Whatever the, uh, whatever the situation may have been. But let's look at this verse. I want to read straight through chapter 3. I'm not going to stop. We'll talk about it a little bit at the end of it, and then we'll get into chapter 4. And again, this time it says, for this reason, um, it, it still covers it. That's why I'm still going to do this and not go back. So it says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which was carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family uh, in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, 
To him be the glory and the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In a nutshell, this is not about the Gentiles, really. It's not about the Jews. It's not about his qualifications. It's The Apostle Paul in this particular chapter is talking about his managerial responsibilities, his stewardship, if you would. This is, this is about Paul's stewardship. In other words, it doesn't matter where a person comes from. If you know what a person's intentions are towards you, does it help? It does. It absolutely helps. If we as, as uh, individuals inside the church understand that every one of us, regardless of whether we have a title or not, we're managers. At the very least, you're managing your own life. At the most, God may give you a responsibility where you're a manager of a church or you're a manager of a Sunday school class or you're a manager of the finances or you're a manager um, of a... a, There's a hundred things you could list. Preachers aren't the only managers inside a, a church. And Paul didn't need to convince them that he had changed. All he needed to convince them of was that he was not working for himself or any human institution. First thing that he pointed out in there was that, was that God was the one that called him to send him to the Gentiles. So he didn't say, I'm coming to you to share you a word that you don't know yet, which would be a little pompous. He said, I'm coming to you because God sent me to you. And I'm going to tell you and show you the things that God wants me to tell you and show you. So Paul was no longer living within his own old self. He was living in his new self. And this, when we get to it, and we hopefully we will get to it, he brings us up just a little bit farther down in this passage of Scripture. When we come to know Christ, the old is supposed to have been passed away. Why do you suppose Paul, why do you suppose Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul? It wasn't automatically going to, you change one letter in the guy's name and everybody's going to forget what he did. It's entirely symbolic. Who Paul was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was not the same person Paul was after he met uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wasn't the same person. And we wouldn't be either. You imagine walking down the street or just walking down Walmart, an aisle in Walmart, and that happening to you? We're not in control of anything. We're not supposed to be in control of anything. Matter of fact, we're supposed to be the one being controlled And the question is, what's controlling us? Because we're all being controlled by something. You've heard me say before that there's really only two teams to play for in this world. There's not three. They all fit into one or two categories. Either they are desiring to to accredit God with everything, therefore living their lives to to please him, or individuals who don't. And every choice that you make falls in one of those two categories. Either the choice you make will glorify God or it will not glorify God. That's just a fact. So... Let me put it in this context, and then we'll move on. The difference between someone who actually realizes that they're a steward. Is a manager the boss? No. They may be inside that building at any given time. They're not the boss. they got somebody in authority over them. And they're the ones that are trying to make sure that the ones are doing their jobs that are under. That are under. And then that thing keeps moving, that keeps moving down the... Well, as a when we see ourselves as managers or stewards that have a boss over us, 
it's not only an encouragement for us to deal with people the way that he wants us to deal with people, but it's a it's an effective strategy with dealing with people. Let me put it this way to you. Um, what's the difference between me looking at you and saying there's plenty of stuff about you that I could fix? How many of you guys would receive that well if a preacher walked up to you and said that? Hey, there's plenty of stuff in your life I could fix. How would you rather me approach you in such a way as to say something like, Jesus called me to deal with your issues. He's equipped me to deal with the things that you're going through. What's the difference between the two? One was me doing it, which is prideful. And the other one's Jesus is doing it. These are little bitty things people don't think about a whole lot. You knock on somebody's door, you walk up and you and you say, uh, uh, how would you feel if you was to find out that the person who told you there was no Jesus was wrong? What's the word wrong do? It's a negative. You'll shut a conversation down if you use the word wrong and you point it at that person or anybody else around them. Because even if you say what you were told is wrong, who told them that? Their dad? So you're saying their dad's wrong? Their mom? Maybe they're dead. Maybe it's their grandparents. Maybe one of their grandparents said it and they've passed away since then. What have you just caused now by doing that? You've not just stopped this conversation, but you've prevented one from ever happening again. Right? But how does it change things? You walk up to somebody and say, hey, how would it make you feel if I was to tell you that what you were told was untrue? Where's the blame go? Really hard to find a source to blame in that, isn't it? Isn't there? Because there isn't one. Because you don't want them focusing on you blaming, blaming someone. You want them to focus on what it is that they have been told potentially could be untrue. So you remove their emotion from the picture and the person can reasonably process that in their brain. That's what this is. That's what managerial responsibility is as a Christian. Managerial responsibility is, is, is having the leadership ability in your own life to be able to tend to things well. It's not talking about just things that you plan on. It's talking about also things you do not plan on. A manager in a gas station, do you think they have a set responsibilities or they pretty much have to handle all kinds of random things all day? They're handing all kinds of random things all day. And our lives are the same way. So Paul's reaching out to these to the to the church in Ephesus, the Gentiles, by by letting them know, look, it's not me coming to teach you. It's not me coming to bring to you what it is that I know. God called me into the ministry to minister to you. Therefore, what I am bringing to you will be from God. It will not be from me or my past. Now Philippians chapter 3 makes a little more sense, right? That's where, that's where uh, the Apostle Paul said that he's counted all things that were gained, he's counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. This is the, this is the, this is the application or the fulfillment of what it was that, Paul, that, that he had said back then. Look at chapter 4, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now he starts off pretty rough. He starts off rough because he's established. It's the same thing that I say up here. If, if I say something that makes you mad, don't take it up with me. Take it up with God because I spent eight hours. He's the one that tells me what to say. I say it, and the fallout is what the fallout is. So if you get mad at me about something I say, take it up with him unless you can prove that it was something that he didn't tell me to say. He comes out of the shoot pretty hard here, doesn't he? 
I mean, after him pretty much just saying, the Lord has called me here to minister to you. And then he comes out of the shoot in chapter four. I therefore, in other words, it's him saying, it's him saying, because of the fact that Jesus Christ has called me to, to lead you to him, to train you up and disciple you so that you may be an active part of the church and a part of the process of fulfilling God's purpose. So you see how that all worked at first? This is who I am. This is why I'm here. This is who I work for. And then this is what I have to say. And the what I have to say, I therefore, in other words, as a result of what I said in chapter 3, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How many of you feel like you could ever walk in a manner that, uh, in a worthy manner? How many of you feel like you can walk in a worthy manner? None of us do perfectly, can we? But if you have a standard of a worthy manner, and you have Jesus in your life and the Holy Spirit running around in your soul, will you desire to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Absolutely we would. I've told, I, don't know, I don't remember if I ever told this story in a Sunday morning service. I know I've told it in Bible studies before. And I may have said it in a sermon. Did I tell you guys a story about the me going to that conference over in Illinois like three years ago and sitting in a conference where this guy had figured out how to, categor, how to categorize every person in the church? And this was right after um, a really rough time in my life. Somebody in the church tried to get me fired, and it turned into a pretty big ordeal. And It was something I was really looking forward to, just getting away and getting taught myself, just getting into a room somewhere and listening to somebody else preach to me. I don't get to do that enough. Uh, and I sit in this class, and this guy who had been a church planner and bivocational pastor his entire life was leading this class. He was a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he spent his entire, um, like, 50 minutes of his hour-long class categorizing people. And I sat there with, with, my, with my tablet in front of me, and I am frantically writing this stuff down. Uh, the tank. The tank is the type of person in a church that walks in and is so explosive they have to make sure that everybody knows they're there. You ever meet one of those? They're just loud. What about the termite? He, he named the termite. That's a category. Those are the people that if they ever stepped out in the light, they'd die. But they're always destroying things and they're always being destructive. But they do it in such a way as you never see them do it. The sniper. The person who likes to hit the pastor from a distance. And this guy had like 15 of these categories. And I'm honestly, tell you my heart was in the wrong place. He's giving me these categories and I am writing names down under them. I was hurt that bad. I, I was eating this stuff up. This guy who used to be a Southern Baptist Convention uh, president... This guy is validating the way that I feel. Did I need to be validated in the way I was feeling? No. Please do not encourage that activity. Don't encourage it. The last 10 minutes of this guy's class, guess what it was? He said, now I want you to close your tablet. I'll ask you one question. 
Who called you? My heart instantly melted in my chest. I shouldn't do what I do because people stay. I shouldn't do what I do because people leave. I shouldn't do what I do because people leave. I shouldn't do what I do because people get sick. I shouldn't do what I do because people die. I shouldn't do what I do because people... See where I'm going? We do what we do because God's called us to do it. And when he calls us to do it, we're supposed to do it regardless of how that turns out. If Jesus tells me to do something nobody shows up to, is that good good or bad? Well, we certainly get discouraged when nobody shows up, right? But if God said to do it and nobody showed up and you did it, is it good or bad? It's good. Never be discouraged because you try something in a church that only one or two people showed up to. Never fall into the trap of making church about the numbers. Never fall into the trap of making church about the money. Never fall into the trap of making the church even listen to me. You hear this? Don't make it about the dogmatic purpose of the church. Jesus doesn't want us to be tanks and steamrollers rolling over people. That's not what he wants. He wants us to be, to, to be very clear when we're dealing with people that we are not the people who have the authority to do what it is that we're doing. We are the people who are granted that authority by God and his purpose and his plan. In other words, I don't walk up to somebody's door representing me. I hope not. I hope when I walk in Walmart to purchase something. I'm not walking in Walmart representing me. The, the, the title Christian means something. Little Christ. Who am I supposed to be when I'm walking through Walmart? Jesus. I said, well, it's always the easy answer. When I was the director of uh, the Baptist Campus Ministries over at Jefferson College for, uh, for a long time, um, we, had, uh, we had issues all the time where... Uh, where that, yeah, just wasting time. I keep you all late. Uh, let's read a little bit further, and I'll make another point. We'll move on. I'll close. Let you guys go home and eat. <laughs> Chasing rabbits. Um, look at these first these first three verses again, real quick. He says, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience." showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in these three verses, he's actually hitting a, a nutshell. This is a statement that he's making before he goes into verse 4, but when he said in 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another, these instructions are guidelines for us to operate by. They're not things that God wants to hit us over the head with and force us to do. These are things that has to happen in order for us to be able to most effectively play our part in, in this purpose and plan that God has together. How many of you guys, uh, and, and I'm, I'm saying this on, for, for this, it, it ties into this. How many of you guys are worried about World War III breaking out? Anybody? You know what I've heard ever since Russia has invaded Ukraine? Oh, here it comes. Jesus is coming back. Somebody tell me where it says the Third World War is the marker for which we will know that Jesus is coming back. It doesn't say that. There are people packing their bags because they think this is it. Our responsibilities, if whatever may distract us in life, what happens when one person does not fulfill their calling? What happens? Let me put it to you this way. 
I've explained my whole mess of a life with me being mad at God because he always moved the finish line. 18, you want to be a youth pastor? Yeah, I'll be a youth pastor. 18 years old. I just graduated from the youth department. You want to be a youth pastor? Yeah, I'll be a youth pastor. Like, I really knew what I was getting myself into, right? At the age of 21, ordained a deacon. At the age of 23, accepted the call into the gospel ministry. Um, at the age of 30, went to work for Jefferson Baptist Association as a director of student ministries. And every time that God did something, it was like, no, you called me to be a youth minister. You didn't call me to be a deacon. That wasn't part of the deal. He moved the finish line. And then he said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, here, we're going to license you in the gospel ministry so you can go and preach with, you know, with the affirmation of the church that you're leaving when you go fill pulpits in places. But I'm a youth pastor. Then God says, oh, yeah, you're going to leave that $75,000 a year job you got. You're going to work for the association for twenty-seven. But now you're getting personal. I mean, this is getting rough now at this point. I'm a youth pastor. That's what you called me to do. You didn't get all move move the finish line. So I start filling pulpits of the association. That was another new thing for me. Twenty six churches in the association. I got to preach in it about in about a year, year and a half. It's a pretty good experience, right? Then I got sent over here one day. They called me back the second week. Called me back the third week. Called me back the fourth week. And then they asked me if I wanted to be their interim. No, I'm going back to my home church. I'm a youth pastor. So me and God were having it out. Then after that 10-month interim was over with, and I knew my wife my wife grew up a deacon's daughter. She was very aware of what goes on behind the scenes and inside churches. And her, she was always, as I was a youth pastor, she was fine with that. You will never, I do not want to be married to a pastor. You will never, I mean staunchly, I do not want to be married to a pastor. You will not. 10-month interim's over with, one of the persons at the church comes, how would you like to be our full-time pastor? Or our bivocational pastor. I'm like, no. I made a deal. Ten months, I'm going back over there to be a youth pastor. That's what God called me to do. And I knew God was telling me in my heart. I knew it. I knew he was telling me, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to be... I was fighting and arguing with him. And one day I was like, you would never ask me to do anything that my wife is not into 100% also. And boy, did I have a post to lean on. Because all that I'd heard her say, that was my out. We weren't even talking about it. Driving down the highway. And my wife reaches over and grabs me by the arm and she says, you're supposed to be the pastor over at Highland. And it was like somebody just yanked the spine right out of my body and I went completely limp. Because I had nothing to lean on at that point. He moves the finish line. And then I come to realize... He's not moving the finish line. This whole time, he's been equipping me. What did I learn as a youth pastor? I learned on a very minor schedule, administration, how to plan things, how to carry those things out once they're planned. I learned how to uh, relate to parents. I learned how to relate to, relate to adults it, way before my time. 18, 19 years old, the opportunity to get to know adults. And sometimes it wasn't pleasant. I had a lady one time, I always, they always complained, which the youth group that I was a part of, Jesus Kiss the Glory, uh, was, was three times the size of the, reg- the rest of the church. So when these kids would show up in the church, especially at business meetings, they made people really nervous because they, they really could have made any motion and passed it. 
until the church had to change the rules and make sure that that didn't happen. Um, in our individual lives, God is taking us from the place where we may gain some experience in relation with people, with scheduling with. Then I went from being that to being a deacon. Now all of a sudden I'm being very well educated in all of the inner workings of the church, the good, bad, and the ugly from the deacon side. Uh, licensed into the gospel ministry, preached in 26 churches about a year and a half. What does that sound like in hindsight God was doing? He was getting me ready to stand in a pulpit. That's what he was doing in a, in a permanent church. Went to work for the association. What did he teach me? I can tell you, folks, oh, my goodness, what did he teach me? He taught me Baptist polity. He taught me Baptist history. He taught me what it means, the, the relationship that we have between churches of the same denomination. Polity, the word polite comes from the word polity. This is where we've made agreements that we won't poach each other, each other's members. In other words, I need a, I need a Sunday school director. I'm going to call over Chad at the association. I'm going to say, Chad, which church in our association has the best Sunday school director? <laughs> you think that could potentially cause some problems between churches? And imagine that, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's just common sense stuff. This is stuff where we as individuals understand through our calling and all of the preparation that God has done in our lives, we now have the ability to be able to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And the unity of the Spirit's a little different than the unity it speaks of when it just says unity, but it's basically the same thing. It's basically unity. What brings unity? Commonality. Commonality will always bring unity. In other words, what type of people do you usually hang out with? People you have in common with or people you don't have things in common with? You hang out with people you have things in common with. So, to preserve the unity of the Spirit, what do we have in common? He lists it all a little bit farther down in that chapter. One baptism, one faith, one God. We have unity in the foundational beliefs of our, of our faith. So within that unity and within my calling, I need to have the ability to be able to provide, listen, you with the best atmosphere to grow, and you need to provide me with the best atmosphere to grow. And we do that by preserving the unity of the Spirit. In other words, do you think, when are you actually most on your game when it comes to your relationship with Jesus? When you've got everything in your brain all nice and tightly tied up or when it's all hanging out flapping everywhere? You know what I mean by hanging out flapping everywhere? You got like five or six things you're worrying about, and the last thing in the world that you can even imagine to think about is the promises that God gave you that pulls you out of that. So you're just kind of in this chaos where all of your worries and concerns and strifes and temptations and all those things have got you so consumed that you can't even see what's going on around you. Because people get that way all the time. We get so consumed in ourselves, we don't see what's going on around us. The practical application of this is, the next time you go home and your wife or your husband is angry, had a terrible day, attitude, anybody's, anybody's spouse ever show up like that? I want you to run a test, and this test will be a huge leap in the way you conduct your life. 
when you walk in and you see your spouse in a mood from the day, walk up to them, hand them their keys. Don't try to push what's wrong with them. Just say, hey, babe, I can see that you've had a terrible day today. Here's a $20 bill, the keys. Go get yourself a shake. When you come back home, I'll at least make sure that some of these pressures have been taken off of you. You see, I had the choice to come into the room and tango, right? Because if somebody has a bad attitude, that bad attitude is going to cause them to say something mean to me, right? And when somebody says something mean to me, what does it come up? What does it? What, what does it come to? Do you know what those arguments actually come to? You know who wins those arguments? Nobody wins them. When I was young, at twenty-one years old, I literally, I literally believed that if I could make my wife run out of the room crying that I won the argument. As a young man, I believed that. I really did. She would back her bawling her eyes out. I'm beating my chest like a monkey, like a gorilla. Ooh, <laughs> big man won the argument. I made my wife cry. We make, a, we make those choices, and we have the ability to be able to preserve that unity of the Spirit. And it's fairly simple to do. It's just a matter of walking in your calling in a manner that is worthy of that calling. In other words, how many of you guys have really thought about how many, how much your life impacts other people? If one person refuses to, to accept the gift that God gave them and employ it, how many people does that affect? I don't know exactly, but I can tell you numerous. Numerous. And we're talking about, we're not talking about temporary problems. We're talking about eternal issues that is created when God has a spot for a person to fill, but that person is unwilling to fill it. That's another soapbox I could preach a whole other sermon on. But this is the first step in this. Be mindful. One of my favorite things to say as a pastor has been for 20 years. People come up to me and say, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, please don't, please don't create work for me. <laughs> Because too many times people don't think about that. I mean, you, you do something and mess something up, and then I have to take time out of my schedule of the things that I'm already doing, and this thing was completely avoidable. There's just a ton of stuff here in the application of this, folks. If we realize that we don't work for us, if we don't work for the church, we work for Jesus, and regardless of whether we receive a paycheck for that, Everybody does. How many of you guys have ever said, how many of you have ever, ever heard anybody say, and I've heard this a few times in my lifetime, I'd be telling people, hey, we need to start a visitation. I'm like, we pay you for that. I'm like, well, that's true, but Jesus paid you for it too. Didn't he? And honestly, if you was to compare, if you was to compare uh, fringe benefits, which of the two is better, getting a paycheck or getting to go to heaven for an eternity? <laughs> You'll never be worthy of your calling. That's why it doesn't say be worthy of your calling. It says walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You're going you're gonna to make mistakes, but that shouldn't be the norm. We should be people out there working for the Lord, understanding what it is that he wants us to accomplish and how he wants us to accomplish it, how us being in the way is preventing that. And then we make those adjustments and that sanctification process is what makes us even usable in his purpose and plan. 
doesn't happen any way, any other way. If you're here today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. I can't save you, but I will take whatever time necessary to sit down and talk to you about the one that can. Um, if the Holy Spirit moves you, you'll know. You may say, well, I don't know what that means. You will know. Trust me, you'll know. If the Holy Spirit moves you, it will be like nothing you've ever experienced before in your life. Um, and if you feel that, don't grab the pew. If you look really close, the backs of those pews are finger marks in them. It's invitation time. People are grasping a hold of the back of the pew to keep them from accidentally stepping out in the aisle. If Jesus moves you, move. If you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, we are all on this journey together. And all of us are in different places on the path, but all of us are learning how to walk that path. And the truth of the matter is, we have to remember we work for Jesus and that we working for Jesus should absolutely have an impact on how we actually minister to other people. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, discipleship, or if you have prayer requests, you can visit us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. Have a blessed week and go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Highland Gospel Mission was produced by Zach Link with preaching by Keith Perrin. Music provided by Pixabay under Creative Commons.